Good morning, Life Church. Glad you're with us this morning. I hope you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your device. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this Advent season. We're just walking through the Gospel of Matthew, the first two chapters, and the story of Christ's first coming that we find there. Um, so today we're in Matthew 1 18 through 25. I'd love it if you just turn there and hang out with us there. I'll get there in a couple of minutes. The greatest threat to joy for you this Christmas, it's not something that comes from outside of you, but something that comes from inside of you. Right? The greatest challenge that exists to the kind of joy that you long to experience and celebrate this Christmas, right? It's not something on the outside, it's something on the inside. Like often there's a bit of confusion around that in Christian circles especially because, you know, at Christmas we are confronted um, by the realities of our increasingly secular culture And so, you know, there's lots of noise around what Starbucks does and doesn't put on their cup at Christmas time. Um, There's lots of noise around Christmas episodes of TV shows that don't mention Jesus at all. And so it can seem like as we process those things that the greatest challenge to what Christmas is meant to be is something on the outside. That's even true of the way that we will celebrate Christmas with our families, right? It's, it's very easy to think that the greatest threat or the greatest challenge to your Christmas this season is consumerism or materialism, like the pressure to make sure that you picked out the right gift for the right family member, um, the pressure to make sure that you get enough gifts for everybody even though you can't afford those gifts, right? The pressure to make sure that everything that's on your calendar, you get there at the right time, to the right place, in the right way, because this is, you know, just increasingly a busy season for all of us. And so as we think about all of that, it's really tempting to think that, you know, the thing that stands in the way of a joyful Christmas is stuff that's out there. But the Bible actually tells us that the thing that stands in the way of joy this Christmas for each and every one of us is something that's in here. Right, I was struck by that this week as I was reading, just in my devotional time, the letter of Second Peter. On two different occasions in Second Peter, Peter tells us why he wrote the letter that he's writing um, to the church. He says this in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. And then he says something very similar in chapter three, verse one. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them. So actually this is the purpose, not just of second Peter, but first Peter as well. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And so you hear that Peter aims to remind us of something And that in the process of reminding us of something, he wants to to stir us up in some way. And so Peter's saying that what we need is not new information, right? We're not looking for new truth. Like when it comes to biblical truth, new truth usually isn't truth. So we're actually looking to be reminded of old truth so that in that reminder, 
the Lord might stir up our hearts in light of that truth. Stir up. Like that's a, a word that's used in the New Testament sometimes of, of people being woken up. Like for example, in Mark chapter four, when the great storm comes upon the disciples in the boat, Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples, they go and they stir Jesus up, Mark tells us. Like they wake him up from his sleep. And Peter's point is that we are people who are inclined to be spiritually drowsy, spiritually dull, like our spiritual senses from time to time will be numb. And so we will require reminders. Those reminders will be like spiritual smelling salts that that wake us up to the beauty and glory of the truth that we already know. Right, those reminders that will help us to comprehend and apprehend, to lay hold of the beauty of the person and the work and the glory of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for us this season of Advent is just that the Holy Spirit would do this, that he would stir us up by way of reminder that as we set our minds and our hearts on these old truths, the truths of the greatest story ever told, that we would wake from our spiritual slumber to delight in who God is and what God has done for us in sending his son Jesus first to that manger in that stable in Bethlehem so long ago. I pray that happens today as we think about these verses from Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25. Let me read God's word for us, church. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, how might these very old truths stir up our hearts this morning? We're going to think about this passage, and really I just want to point to three key ideas. I'm going to summarize each of them with one word. Those words all start with the same letter. That's how I knew it was of the Lord, right? We're going to talk first about, thank you, we're going to talk first about scandal, then about solution, and then finally about the sun. So let's start with scandal. Uh, Because this story is is familiar to many of us, 
um, it's actually pretty easy for us to lose sight of just how scandalous the situation that we see here in Matthew 1.18 really was. And we also can lose sight of the nature of that scandal. We're not exactly sure what is scandalous about this or what is most scandalous about this. Let me put it that way. To try to help us feel that, let's imagine that we were to read verse 18 again, but, but that we were to omit the last four words of the verse. So imagine that this was all that we were told. Imagine that this was the full story right here. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child, period. Right? Imagine that's all we were told, that the full stop happened right there. She was found to be with child. If we could feel that, we would feel some of the scandal that is here. Luke, or I'm sorry, Matthew tells us that, that Mary and Joseph are betrothed to be married. What exactly does that mean? Well, marriage in the ancient world, um, it worked quite differently than marriage does today. Um, it started when two families had children at a very young age. Often they would arrange a marriage between those two children. Usually some sheeps and goat would change hands when stuff like that happened. Um, but those two children, maybe when they were infants, would be promised to one another. Um, and they would be, from that point forward, much of their lives, they would be engaged to one another. Now, when two children were engaged to be married, it was possible, it didn't happen very often, but it was possible for those families to decide, you know what, we don't actually want our children to marry one another. And so long as you refunded the sheep and goats that changed hand in the first place, then you could break an engagement in the ancient world. And it wasn't too big of a deal. Like I said, it didn't happen all that often. It was pretty rare, but it did happen from time to time. However, there came a point in time, usually when the man was financially independent, so at around age 18, or when the girl turned 12 years old, whichever came first, usually um, that would mean that the couple entered into a betrothal period. Now, when they were betrothed to one another, it was as if they were legally married from that point forward. The betrothal, it required witnesses. Usually two witnesses would sign the betrothal into existence. And legally speaking, that man and that woman would be married from that point forward. We see a hint of that in our passage when verse 19 describes Joseph as Mary's husband, even though they're only betrothed. See, it's like legally they are husband and wife at this point, but they wouldn't come together, which means exactly what you think it means. Um, they wouldn't consummate their relationship. They were betrothed, and so they would still live in mom and dad's home, and usually the families would just spend the next few months or even years saving money and preparing for the wedding feast. Now, the wedding feast in the ancient world, it lasted days, sometimes weeks. You know, the whole town was invited, and you were responsible for feeding everybody in the town for the duration of the wedding feast which is why it took some time to like save up for that, right? People stress about saving for a wedding today. Like that was, it's pales by comparison to the financial commitment to throw a proper wedding feast in the ancient world. And so that was really one of the purposes of the betrothal period. Husband and wife, they're married to one another, but their families are saving to be able to celebrate properly. 
And when the wedding feast came, then the groom would go with his attendants to the bride and he would take the bride to the wedding feast with his attendants, with her attendants. And then after the feast was finally over, they would go to their own home, leaving behind father and mother and they would consummate their relationship. Now, the thing that's important to recognize is that the, in, the engagement period was, was fairly easy to break off a relationship. But once husband and wife were betrothed, right, that was a legally binding situation. According to the Old Testament law, that situation could only be ended through divorce, and that could only happen if the wife had not been chased, if she had not maintained her virginity. Right? And so Mary and Joseph, when Mary turns up with child, when she becomes pregnant, suddenly there's, there's real jeopardy that she is in. I mean, socially, there's, there's a big deal here, right? Like, it would be scandalous today, socially, if two people were engaged to be married and one of them turned up pregnant, and oh, by the way, the fiance is not the father, right? That would be scandalous socially today. Certainly, it was scandalous socially in Mary and Joseph's day also. But far more significant is the legal question here, right? What is Joseph going to do with this pregnant teenager that he has not come together with to whom he is betrothed? Like, what's going to happen to their relationship? And I want you to notice that that's really the scandalous thing that is at the center of the story as Matthew tells it. Notice how much Mary is in the background of the story here. She's not the focus at all in Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus Christ. If you flip over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapters 1 and 2, Mary is the center of this story, right? It's all about what Mary says and thinks and feels and prays. But here in the Gospel of Matthew, Mary, she's, she's barely even there. Because the central question is what's going to happen to this marriage legally, Right, that's the scandalous thing that must be resolved here. The question that Matthew's answering here is not, what is Mary going to do with this baby? What is pregnant Mary going to do? That's not the question that Matthew's answering. The question that Matthew's answering is, what is Joseph going to do with Mary? Now, why does that matter? If you were with us last week, we looked at Matthew 1, 1 through 17, the very long genealogy of Jesus. We saw how Matthew traces Jesus' family line from Abraham to King David up to, not Mary, but Joseph. He's made the argument to us, essentially, that Jesus has the, the lineage, the pedigree necessary to be the Christ because he's a direct descendant of Abraham and David not through Mary, but through Joseph. And so everything that Matthew tells us that's true about Jesus can only be true about Jesus at this point if Joseph is Jesus' father. Essentially, if Joseph adopts Jesus into his family line. And so that's the scandal here. It's not what's gonna happen to poor teenage pregnant Mary. No, the scandal is what's gonna happen to Jesus. Is he going to be adopted into the family line of Joseph? Will he be the son of David and the son of Abraham through Joseph? That's the central question here, the central scandal here that needs resolution. 
And the second thing we're going to look at is solution. And really our passage presents two possible solutions to that scandal. The first is Joseph's solution. We read about it in verse 19. Matthew tells us, and her husband, Mary's husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I didn't know this until Aaron Busey pointed it out to me a couple weeks ago. Um, In all four of the Gospels, Joseph never says a word, right? Joseph is silent in the Gospels. I checked it to make sure Aaron was right because he's not always right. Um, But he was in this particular case. You can't trust that guy, just so you know. Um, He was in this particular case, right? Joseph, he doesn't say anything in the four Gospels. But we do learn from Matthew's Gospel right here a couple of really significant things about Joseph's character. The first thing that we learn is that he's just or he's righteous. That means that Joseph is intent on doing what is right. He's intent on doing the right thing. Now, what what does that mean? Well, we have to understand that, like, if he just goes ahead and marries Mary, that's gonna be recognized by his community as him being the father of this child, right? Everybody in Joseph's community is going to assume that he and Mary have come together before their wedding feast. And so Joseph is going to look like a bad guy if he just outright marries Mary. And he's just, so he's, he, he realizes that he can't do that. But, but Joseph is also compassionate. We see that because he's unwilling to put Mary to shame. He wants to divorce Mary quietly. Legally, according to Deuteronomy 23, Joseph could take Mary outside the city gates and have her stoned to death because she's an adulterer. But Joseph does not do that. He wants to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to shame her. But what we need to recognize is that Joseph's solution here, it doesn't solve the actual scandalous problem. Remember, the actual scandalous problem is not what is Mary going to do with this baby, but what is Joseph going to do with Mary? Is this baby ultimately going to be adopted into Joseph's family line? And it's God's solution to the problem that resolves that for us. We read about it beginning in verse 20. Matthew says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is God's solution. He sends an angelic messenger. That messenger makes an announcement telling Joseph that the child conceived in Mary's womb, has not been conceived by another man, right? Mary is not an adulterer. No, that child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Some people, maybe a lot of people, find what the angel announces to Mary here to be simply unbelievable. Maybe you're one of those people, right? Maybe this idea that the Holy Spirit of God conceives in the womb of this young teenage girl, Christ, the Savior of the world. Maybe that's just a little bit too implausible for you. 
And if that's you, I just want to say, I understand. I mean, Christians believe, frankly, a whole bunch of weird stuff. And this is one of the weirdest things that we believe. For 2,000 years, Christians have believed that the Holy Spirit of God conceived in the womb of Mary, Christ, Jesus, a child, apart from any relationship with a man. Where Christians have believed that. But if you struggle to believe that, then you're probably going to struggle to believe a bunch of other stuff that happens in the Bible too. I mean, because Christians for 2,000 years have believed that the child that came from the womb of young teenage Mary grew to be a man who walked on water and healed people and cast out real demons. He did this thing where he kept turning little tiny snacks into meals that would feed thousands of people, right? We believe that, that Jesus really did those things. And then on top of that, we believe that Jesus really lived a sinless life, that there was no corruption in him at all, in word or deed or thought or affection or emotion, so that he could be a sacrifice for sinners like me and like you. We really believe that, Christians do. We really believe that Jesus was unjustly and falsely accused of a crime that he did not commit, that as a result of that, he was really crucified by real Romans. He was really nailed to a real tree as a punishment for his sin, for our sin, for the crime that he did not commit. We really believe that Jesus, after that, was laid in a real tomb and that three real days later, he really rose from that grave, resurrected in body, not just in spirit. And then Christians really do believe that 40 days after that, Jesus really ascended to the right hand of the throne of heaven. And the icing on all of the cake is the fact that we really believe that Jesus will really come again one day in power and glory. There will be no mistaking his second coming like some have mistaken in his first coming, and we really believe that upon his second coming, he will judge the living and the dead with his perfect and infinite justice. Christians really believe these things. It's a bunch of weird stuff, if we're honest. But what I would lay before you is that the alternative to believing that, it's actually just as weird. I mean, it takes faith to believe that the Holy Spirit of God conceived Jesus Christ in the womb of teenage Mary. I get that. Like, I can't prove that that happened to you. I won't try. I believe it happened because this book right here says that it happened, and I really believe that this book right here is the inspired, inerrant, that means without error, infallible, that means perfect, and authoritative word of God, that God himself really spoke these words through human authors. Right? I believe that that's true. That's one more weird thing that Christians believe. But because this word says that those things happen, I believe them. I recognize that that takes faith. That that means that I believe a lot of things that I can't see with my eyes or prove objectively. But let's say that you believe in like the origin of the cosmos via something like a Big Bang, right? Like there's just this little tiny bit of matter that exploded and all of life as we know it, all of reality as we know it came from that, that moment, that explosion. And there was no intelligent design behind any of it. Everything just sort of happened or evolved into the incredibly sophisticated and intricate cosmos that we are a part of right now. Let's say that you believe that. Man, I'll tell you that I don't think that requires any less faith than believing that there is an intelligent creator behind all things who spoke the universe into existence 
and who with that same creative power by his Holy Spirit created a child in Mary's womb, though she knew no man. The Australian pastor and writer, Glenn Scrivener, he makes that same comment this way. He says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. Right? What requires more faith, really? They both require faith. Which miracle will you choose to believe? I choose to believe what God's word says, that the Holy Spirit did inspire, create, form in the womb of Mary, the second person of the Trinity. Now, let me be clear about that because it's incredible. Actually, I pray that this is the kind of truth that stirs you up today. I pray that this is the kind of truth that, that warms your heart and stirs your heart to delight in the Lord this Christmas. Right? The Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Holy Trinity is eternally existent. That means there has never been a moment when God the Father did not exist. There has never been a moment when God the Son did not exist. There's never been a moment when God the Spirit did not exist. And furthermore, there has never been a moment when God the Father was not God. There's never been a moment when God the Son was not God. There's never been a moment when God the Spirit was not God. Right, but still, somehow, we can't figure out the math on this, right, but somehow God, the Spirit, made the eternally existent Son of God into a human being. Right, God, the Son, became flesh because of the work of God, the Spirit. The uncreated, unchanging, unchangeable Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us in a way that he, he lived and, and grew and in his human form changed over time. But the author of all of life, he wrote himself into the story of human life. The architect of the cosmos, he drafted himself into his creation the one who sustains and creates all things by his powerful word. He gave himself a human voice, a voice that, by the way, almost certainly did cry away in the manger on that very first Christmas Eve. This is the message that the angel announces to Joseph. And yes, it's a miracle, but all of life is a miracle. Joseph, for one, believed this miracle. Look at how Joseph responds. And in verse 24, Matthew tells us, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Right, so he, he believed the angel and then he, he obeyed the angel. He took as his wife, he took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And then here's the climax of the passage, right? And he called his name Jesus. Why is that the climax of the passage? It's because when Joseph names Jesus, that means legally, formally speaking, he adopts Jesus. Right? In Joseph's culture, a father would name his son on the eighth day of his life after his circumcision as a way of declaring to everyone present, this child is mine. And so when Joseph names Jesus, he adopts Jesus into his family line and Jesus, be- Jesus becomes the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right, Mary's scandalous 
pregnancy and the threat to the lineage of Jesus. They're resolved when Joseph names Jesus. So I told you three things, scandal, solution. Here's the third thing that we need to see from this passage. And I've summed it up with the word son because of what Matthew says in the two verses I skipped. I skipped verses 22 and 23. Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's the prophecy. This is Isaiah chapter seven. Quote, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. End quote. Having quoted Isaiah, Matthew then adds a word of explanation telling us what Emmanuel means. It says Emmanuel means God with us. And so what Matthew is emphasizing here is that all of this was promised beforehand. God is keeping his promises. But in the process of keeping his promises, God has come to dwell among his people. God is with us in the form of Jesus Christ. Church, that's a truth that really ought to stir up our hearts this Christmas season. Have you noticed how profoundly restless the world that we live in actually is? If you notice the fact that we as people, we're just never satisfied. We're convinced generally that what we need in order to be satisfied is just over the crest of the next hill. And so we go through life thinking that if we can just climb this one hill, we'll get to the top and then we'll have arrived and we'll have what we've really been looking for. But the problem is throughout life, like you get to the crest of that hill only to discover that there's another slightly larger hill right after it. And so you've crested one, but then all of a sudden you feel like, oh no, I've got to reach the crest of that next one and then that next one and then that next one and then ultimately, finally, I'll be satisfied. I mean, this plays out in tons of different ways in everyone's life. If you're the kind of person who is inclined to find your worth and your value and your joy and your work. But I'm sure that you've experienced that in your career. Right, maybe you started out 22, 23, 24 in a certain career um, and pretty quickly it became apparent to you that you weren't in the right career. At least you didn't think you were in the right career and you thought, man, you know, if I can just find a different job, that'll make me happy. Then I'll be at rest. Only to move to a different job and realize that you still weren't happy. You still weren't at rest because the second you moved to that different job, like there was a new hill that you had to climb, a new crest that you had to reach. Or maybe you stayed in your job, but you just thought, you know, the thing that I really need is to like advance. I need to get promoted here. And so you start like at this entry level position and you just think to yourself, man, if I could just like be a supervisor or a manager, then I'd be good, right? That's the crest that I need to reach. And so you work hard and you apply yourself convinced that if you just reach the top of this hill, then you're going to be good. And you get there and they promote you to supervisor or manager. And now all of a sudden you've got a ton of responsibility, a little bit more money and tons more stress. Right? And so you're thinking, man, being, being in management isn't where it's at. Really, I need to be partner 
because then I'll have authority around here and people will actually do what I say. And so again, you work hard and you apply yourself and you invest yourself and maybe you get promoted again and you're like a partner or the CEO of your company or whatever and you, you have the authority that you've been longing for but now everything rests on the bottom line and your fortunes and your joy rise and fall with how the company's stock is doing. And you just think to yourself, man, I can't wait until I'm retired. That's when I'll be happy. That's when I'll have joy. That's when I'll be able to rest, only to be retired and realize all of the regret and remorse that you have over the work that you've done, that you didn't do, the opportunities that you had that you didn't have. Right? Because if you invest your sense of worth and value and joy in your work, you will find that you are just never, ever satisfied by that. Or imagine that you're the kind of person who derives their sense of worth and value and joy from their family. You might think family's a great thing. How could that be bad? And on a certain level, you're right. Family is a good thing. But family makes a lousy God, which means that it cannot bear the weight of what you're really longing for in life. And so you can think to yourself, you know, if I just get married, then I'll have the happiness that I'm longing for only to get married and realize that your spouse is a wicked sinner like you are. And so that does not always work out in a neat and clean and tidy way. If that was offensive to you, you have not been around here long enough. (laughs) Because one thing that we will just affirm over and over and over again is that we are all wicked sinners, me most of all. Right, but so you get married and you think that that was gonna make me happy, but now it clearly isn't. And so there's this new crest, right? A new hill that you've got to climb. And so you think we just need children and you get children, but then all of a sudden you realize that when you have children, you don't sleep like ever and you have no social life. And so you're just longing for the day when your kids are like independent enough to brush their own teeth and make their own sandwiches. But then when you climb that hill and you get to the point where your kids can brush their own teeth and make their own sandwiches, you realize that they're teenagers and you just want to go back to when they're a little tiny and simple right, and respectful, and things like that, and so, you know, like, quickly, you realize that there is an unending number of hills to climb if you're looking for your joy, or your satisfaction, or your rest in your family. All of us, because of where we live, like, are tempted to find some rest, some joy, some satisfaction in our stuff, That's why there's always a new iPhone coming out. That's why there's always a new model year for the car that you drive. That's why the clothes that you have that might be in style today aren't going to be in style tomorrow. You just have to put them in your closet and wait for 20 years when they'll be back in style again. That's why you have an unending number of home remodeling projects if you own your home because you're convinced that if we just kind of like make this place a little bit nicer, then we'll be happy. But the truth is there are just always, always, always hills to climb. Because the world that we live in, it's restless. Look, we never find joy, we never find peace in this world. One of the most famous Christian thinkers and authors is C.S. Lewis, and I think probably the most famous thing that he said is an explanation of why this world is so restless. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, most people if they had really learned to look into their own hearts. Now I'll pause there. A lot of us don't learn to look into our own hearts. Right, we're just content to keep doing our thing. We don't take the time to investigate ourselves. We're not honest enough with ourselves. We don't wanna know the truth about ourselves. So a lot of us never get to this point, but most people, 
if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely, that means like intensely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. This is why we're restless if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And Lewis adds, he says, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy our restlessness, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Right, if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. What he means is that like, if you find yourself satisfied by something in this world, you need to be thankful for that because you shouldn't be satisfied in this world. And if you find yourself unsatisfied by something in this world, then you should be thankful for that too because that dissatisfaction, it's actually an echo of what you're really longing for and it arouses in you a desire for that thing that you cannot possibly experience in this life. And so he lands and he says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I must keep alive in myself my desire for my true country, Lewis says. Why are we so restless? It's because this world isn't our true country. It doesn't matter where you've lived or how long you've lived there. It doesn't matter if Salisbury has been your home since day one or your home since yesterday. This is not your home. If there are things that you love about this place, praise God and be thankful because that's an echo of your true home. If there are things that you hate about this place, praise God, be thankful because that creates in you a longing for your true heavenly home but this world is not your true country. And you will not find rest until you get to your true country. How do you get there? That's the thing that we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? That's the thing that comes home with sweetness. The thing that I pray that the Lord will stir up in our hearts this Christmas as we think about the truth of Emmanuel, God, with us. See, our true home, it's where God is. Psalm 16 tells us that in the presence of God is fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore at his right hand. Right Where God is, that is where joy is experienced to its fullest, where God is. That's our true home, our heavenly home, our true country, our heavenly country. But the truth is we couldn't get there, right? Apart from God's gracious work in our lives, we were stuck here apart from God, separated from God. Actually, that's the story of the whole Bible, 
right? In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, and God is with them, right? They walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. They enjoy perfect and intimate fellowship with God in the garden, and the Bible tells us that it was very good. In that moment, in that place, there was fullness of joy, but then Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Though they enjoyed that perfect, intimate fellowship, and don't blame them, you would have too, I would have too, but they rebelled against God. And as a result of their rebellion, God cast them from his presence. Genesis 3 tells us that God barred them from his presence in the garden and then put a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden so that nobody could enter into the garden again without first passing under the flaming sword of his eternal justice. And then throughout the pages of the inspired, inerrant, infallible, word of God, we continue to see this theme that God's people are driven from his presence, right? When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, to hear the covenant of God declared to him and chiseled in stone on behalf of the people, he asks to see the presence of God and God responds, no one can see my presence and live. And so yes, the glory of God passes by Moses, but Moses has to hide himself in the cleft of a rock because he can't see God face to face and live. Right throughout the Old Testament is the priests make sacrifices like on the Day of Atonement when they go into the most holy place they have to like burn all of this incense and all of these sacrifices and offerings so that the most holy place is filled with smoke as this symbol of the fact that though they enter into God's holy presence they cannot see God's holy presence through the thickness of the smoke. Right, that's just this theme that God's people cannot be in God's presence because of our sin. But then, Jesus Christ became Emmanuel, God with us. He left his true home. He descended from the throne of glory and came and lived among us. John 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only God who is full of grace in truth. Right, do you hear the shift? Moses, no one can see God and live. Jesus, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only full of grace and truth because Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. But consider what Jesus had to do in order to be Emmanuel, God with us. Not only did he have to set aside the power and privilege and prestige of heaven, Not only did he have to leave his true home and come to our earthly home, but later in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll read things like Jesus saying, the Son of Man has no home. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Because for the duration of his life and ministry on earth, Jesus was a homeless man wandering around in a far country for us. And then he went to a cross. Actually, he was marched outside of the city, outside of the city gates, like again, further away from the place you want to be. And he was nailed to a cross. And he did all of that for our sake. Right? Jesus left his true home in heaven so that he might come for us and take us back to his true home in heaven. He did that to put an end to our restlessness, to lead us back to the fullness of joy that only comes 
from being in God's presence. Brothers, sisters, that's why Christmas is worth celebrating. Last night, uh, my family and I, we spent um, a few hours in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, We went to a performance of Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. Now, if you don't know, Behold the Lamb, um, it's an album that was released for the first time like 22 years ago. Um, And it's, it's the story of redemption through the lens of Christmas, right? It explains, honestly, a lot of what I've said here about what God has done to bring his people back to himself, centering on sending this little tiny baby to be God with us, Emmanuel. And uh, Behold the Lamb has become uh, the Shrek family's like favorite Christmas tradition by far, right? I've probably listened to the album a thousand times in my life. And in the last few years, they've been live streaming like a performance of Behold the Lamb. And we watch that multiple times every Christmas. I mean, it's just one of the things that we deeply look forward to every year. And we had the opportunity to go last night to see it live in person. Um, and I'll be honest, like we were driving in the car and there was this part of me that was like, why are we doing this? Um, I've seen this before on TV. I've listened to this music a bunch of times before. And frankly, I was stressed because it was in Wake Forest. It ended like at 10, 15 p.m. We had to drive back. I get up crazy early on Sunday mornings and I was like, I'm gonna like fall over in the middle of the second service because I'm so tired tomorrow. And there was just this part of me that was like <laughs> unsure of why we had taken the steps that we took uh, to go to this performance last night. And then we were there, and it was incredible. And I left with a heart that was just so full, having heard nothing that I hadn't heard before. Right? I'm not kidding when I say I've listened to the album a thousand times. Right? But truths that are worth hearing are worth hearing again and again and again. And when you set your heart on truths that are worth hearing, it stirs you up. And so though we got home at like 12.15 and I climbed into bed about three hours and 45 minutes before my alarm went off this morning, my heart was just so full. It was a sweet, sweet time of communion with the Lord for us. How is your communion with the Lord this Christmas season. Is that something on your radar? Right, I mean, you've got like a Christmas list and a bunch of parties to attend and family gatherings to plan and meals to prepare. Like that gets a lot of our attention. But just how's your communion with the Lord right now? Having remembered these old truths, how is the Lord stirring you up to delight in communing with him. I was on a phone call on Thursday with a bunch of pastors from a couple of different continents, actually, um, talking about a work that we are privileged to be a part of together. And one of the guys who was on the call was talking about just like, a, a way to assess that or evaluate like how you describe your communion with the Lord right now. He offered five categories, right? He said maybe you would say that your communion with the Lord is marked by sweetness. The word is alive to you. Prayer seems intimate to you. But you cannot wait to gather with God's people. 
and God's truth comes just flowing out of your mouth. Maybe that's you. Praise God if so. Some of us will say that our communion with the Lord is marked by striving. And by the way, striving is a good thing because no one gets to sweetness without striving. Right? Sweetness doesn't just happen. It's not like you get slapped across the face with it. It happens because the Holy Spirit empowers the work that you do or that I do to be in his word, to be in prayer, to gather with his people. Maybe your life is characterized by striving in your pursuit of communion with the Lord. Maybe you're coasting. Maybe you're relying on past striving or past sweetness to just coast. You're not applying any effort. It's a dangerous place to be. Maybe you're drifting. Right? You don't even really know what direction you're headed anymore. You're just battered about by the wind and the waves. Maybe you'd say that your communion with Christ is a disaster right now. But friends, Christ has come to be Emmanuel, to lead us back to God, to bring us into the fullness of joy in his presence. He's come to give us rest. I pray this Christmas season that your heart would be stirred up again by those old truths. Or maybe your heart would be stirred up for the very first time by those old truths. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Father, I pray that you would wake us up that you would stir our spiritually dull, sleepy, weary hearts to delight in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Help us to lay hold of the truth that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to lay hold of the truth that he forsook his heavenly home to come and live and die for us, to take us to that heavenly home. Help us to be stirred up by the truth that Christ left what we long for in order to give us what our hearts long for. May we hold on to these things this Christmas season and be stirred up by them. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.